Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, my guest is Elise Keith, and Elise has been on a mission for the last 10 years to fix the thing that most people spend most of their time doing at work, and that's meetings. Who hasn't been in a meeting that was terrible? And in fact, many people go to meetings expecting them to be terrible so they can get their work done. Sit at the back, do your email, pay no attention, chip in if you're specifically called out, but otherwise don't be present. And at least thought maybe that that's just how meetings were, that they were terrible, but she actually witnessed some people come together who should have been in conflict and have a great meeting. And she realized that most of us spend our working lives with people which we are trying to collaborate with. And in those circumstances, meetings should be amazing. She's worked out what type of meetings there are. She's worked out how to approach these meetings and how to get the best out of everybody. So I hope, like me, you find something valuable here and you can improve what you spend most of your working life doing, which is meetings. Here's Elise. Let's meet better. My name's Elise Keith. I am a meet, meeting expert. I come from Portland, Oregon in the United States. And me and my team, our mission is to make it easy for teams to have consistently successful meetings. Elise, thank you for joining me today. Before I ask you anything else, what, why are you on a mission to fix meetings? It, that's not to say I don't agree that meetings are often awful, but it's just like, why have you decided to save us from ourselves? <laughs> well, you know, the thing about meetings is that there's this giant body of work out there telling everyone that meetings are a terrible waste of time. Meetings are awful. Meetings suck. There's a great book on that title, more than one. So it's become this idea that here is this thing that's just a terrible drain and there's nothing we can do about it. And yet in my research over the past decade, what I've found is that the meeting is this one place where you bring together your team to talk about your work and you get this opportunity to create that alignment and embed your culture and really solidify your identity together as the folks who are going to make things happen. It's this amazingly powerful moment within every company that when people are doing it well, really can absolutely change the whole dynamic of how they go about their days in a very life positive and, you know, mission advancing way. It's this often hugely overlooked area of a lot of people's businesses as well, because you've got this idea that oh, there's nothing we can do. These are always just awful. So we're on a mission to help people tap into this huge opportunity that's just right under their noses. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I often, when I'm working with clients or, or looking at their business, even if they don't fix anything else, 
even if they just made their meetings better, more functional, God, fun to be at, they would transform the lives of most of their employees and reap benefits, even if they didn't have core purpose, core values, even if they didn't have a BHAG, even if the meetings weren't in the right sort of rhythm, just doing them right would be a huge improvement. How, how did you end up with this realization? So my journey started when I went to work as a young professional for an internet startup. And at the time, we're a young, cool company and we're, we're going to change the world and all of the things that internet startups think that they are going to do. And yet, we couldn't agree on what color the logo should be or what kind of, how many spaces there should be in our code before you got to the first line. And like none of the things could we agree on. So it was incredibly dysfunctional. That said, we had this great opportunity to make collaboration software for international standards organizations. And these groups by definition don't agree. They're working on things like water safety, like what is safe water supposed to be or how do USB plugs work? And the people who are doing this are coming together from competitors and the government and end users and consumers. So by definition, they don't like each other. They might like each other personally, but they don't want the same things to have happen. And they were able to get to agreements and they were able to get to agreements that then created whole industries or change the way millions of people do their jobs, right? Like the PMI standards for how you do project management. Millions of people around the world are now beholden to <laughs> understand and work by those standards that were created by these people who are from all, all over the place. And the way they did it was they use a series of very structured, well-designed meetings. And I'm like, uh -huh. if these people can get things done, using meetings, then meetings are pretty darn powerful. And then back at the office, uh, we adopted Agile, which also relies on a series of well-designed meetings. And all of a sudden, we were able to ship software on a fairly reliable basis. That worked. You know, some <laughs> amazing, wonderful things happen. So in those two experiences, it became very, very clear that while trying to change your culture is hard and while trying to create alignment or instill values, all of these wonderful ideas were incredibly difficult. Changing the meeting was entirely possible and that changed everything else. If you got meetings right, it gives you a tool to leverage everything else, doesn't it? And they ripple and they ripple good and they ripple bad. So if you're not getting them right, the research is very clear. The research um, says that in places where they have chronically bad meetings, they have lower performance overall, just top line revenue kinds of things are not working. And it's especially damaging to employee engagement and retention. Mm -hmm. So if you are like every business there is right now struggling to keep quality employees and you're not running good meetings, that would be one of the first places to look. And so... What's a good meeting? And are there different types of meeting? Is sometimes somebody thinks it's a meeting and it's not a meeting? Is there a definition for a meeting? And then what's the framework? There are actually definitions for good meetings. And it's really lovely to have also lots of good examples out there because it's quite easy to spot what we don't like, but much harder to understand the kinds of models for what does work. 
So at a fundamental level, there are two perspectives that you can look at a meeting and say, that was a good meeting. And one is the experience of the people in the room. Did they feel like that was a good use of their time is <laughs> really the, the foundational part of it. And for that, it has to be relevant to them in some way. So anytime that people are inviting everybody they know to the meeting, they are actually setting up the conditions for a poor meeting because for many of those people that what's happening is not terribly relevant and they have to participate. So anytime you're just talking at someone, that's a recipe for them to check out and that drags everything down. So that's the first perspective is like, how is that experience for the people in the room? And then the second perspective is the external one from the business looking down going, Hey, did this time investment we've made of our people and our energy and our conference room <laughs> yield something of business value? Did we get a net positive impact from having invested that time? Okay. And so what do you do? You survey, you ask the people in the meeting whether they, at the end, whether it was worth doing? You can do that for the first part. That's one way to start measuring. Most folks are way far away from beginning to measure anything. You know, it'd be um, a more approachable way to do it is to like design your meeting so that everybody there has something to do. <laughs> like they get a chance to talk and you're in pretty good shape at that point. And then from the business value perspective, there are actually one of the questions you asked earlier, are there different kinds of meetings? And there are, there are 16 distinct types of business meetings. Okay. And each one of them achieves a different kind of goal. They produce different kinds of results. So from a business perspective, if you have enough education going on or enough of a system in place to see that the kinds of meetings on the calendar are actual, honest to goodness, well-defined meetings, you'll know what is the outcome of a planning meeting? What's the business value that you get from that? It's a plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's, some of them are, are screamingly obvious, you know. What's the business value you get out of an interview with a potential hire? You get information you use to move forward. So, and each and every one of the types has that kind of clarity to it. And what we see in the people who are really fabulous, they're doing really good things, where you walk in and you ask people about their meetings and everybody says, well, let me tell you about this meeting. We have this kind of meeting and we have that kind of meeting and here's how we do that. They don't go into the meeting hell lament. They start being specific. What you find in those organizations is they have figured these things out and they have a system in place. So in the 10 years you've been researching your specialist topic, yeah. have you come up with a these are the 10 things or uh, I don't know, top three or, you know... It, is it things like taking notes, setting an agenda? Is there a best way to do that? Have you found? Yeah, absolutely. So just to restate, the biggest bang comes when you look at your business and you understand what you need to achieve in each area and you design meetings specifically to do that. Give me an example of that. Okay. So leadership teams. Leadership yeah. teams are a great example. And there are several methodologies, the Gazelle's methodologies and EOS and a number of others, and they will lay out a pattern that looks basically like this. The leadership team once a year will do big strategic planning. What are our big goals? What are our obstacles, our risks? And they come together. 
that plan will generate a series of numbers of some kind and top priorities. Those numbers and those top priorities are reviewed in a weekly meeting that's somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes, right? They will also get together that listening leadership team every morning for a daily huddle, 10 to 15 minutes where they make sure that they're on, on top of the pulse of what's going on in an operational way. So right there, they've got a separation from their strategic discussion to their tactical discussions, distinct types of meetings at different yeah. cadences. And then those same leadership teams will add in often once a month or more a meeting that's dedicated to making high quality decisions. Because if you've got a big decision, should we do the merger? Should we open the new plant? Our biggest competitor went out of business. Our biggest competitor just got a major funding round. Whatever those things might be, you've got crises and opportunities that you shouldn't try to just whip through in your weekly meeting. So they'll reserve time for actually doing the work required to make a quality decision on their calendar. And they don't know what the decision they're going to need to discuss is, but it's uh, here is the placeholder for that meeting, type of meeting. Yeah, a placeholder for that meeting and a methodology. We understand how to gather information for this. We understand how to discuss it. We understand how to make the decision. That's what a well-designed meeting flow looks like for a leadership team. They know when they're going to decide on their strategy. They know when they're going to check progress. They know how they're going to make decisions. There's no guessing. There's no like, hey, let's get in a room and talk. It's structured and it's clear. And teams that adopt those things perform better. That would be something, I think you may have seen some of that in your experience. Yeah, well, I was, I was actually just going to say the perform better piece. Do you have a sense of quantify the perform better? Is it 5, 10, 25%, 10x? I don't because it really depends on where you're starting. You'll see teams make this transition when they have nothing. Right? And they're just starting out and they're in a terrible hole and then make a massive transformation. And then you'll see larger companies adopt this and where the percentage gains are not going to be the same because you're dealing with a much larger place to start with, right? So, and that's one of the things that's both wonderful and challenging about meetings is that it applies in all of the domains in which we like to do work with other people. <laughs> so the great opportunity there is that let's say you're a nonprofit. In that case, sometimes you're not looking to see massive revenue gains, but you are looking to see reach gains or impact yeah. gains, right? So the, yeah. the measure is going to be a distinct okay. measure. The place so that I like to see it most specifically is in that engagement, the, basically what is now called culture, right? Like, do people yeah. enjoy working there? But the other place that I like to see the impact is decisions. What does, a, what does a structure of a great meeting look like? So there is an underlying structure to every decent meeting. And it starts by, you know, somehow within the first five minutes, everybody speaks whether that's a go-around check-in or any number of ways you can do that. But the core thing is that you've got to get people bridged from whatever it is they've been doing out in the wide world because we're all running. This is early morning for me, so I was making sure the dog got out. And then I'm in, and then we're like, oh, the trees and the light, and it's cold. And so, you know, we have to come from that headspace into, hey, we're doing this thing right now. And that first five minutes, if people are allowed to come in and ignored, that headspace shift doesn't change for them. And they get a very clear message that this is a conversation that I can go ahead and sit in the back and keep working on my email. 
So both to help make the transition, also to make it clear that this is a place where we're going to do work together. In that first five minutes, everybody speaks and you clear somehow or another into the space and you get them focused on the, on the work at hand. And then the work at hand in the middle changes depending on what you're trying to accomplish, of course. But at the end of every solid meeting, there needs to be a review of what happened. Because the minute people walk out or hang up, they're going to go about to their next thing. So if it's not excruciatingly clear what was decided, who's going to do what next and by when and how are we checking, mm -hmm. those things don't happen. So one of the co most common questions I get is, you know, hey, Elise, my meetings are great. This is also an interesting thing about the psychology and why people tend to run terrible meetings. My meetings are great, but I can't make my team accountable. How do I make people be accountable? And there are so many things wrong with that. <laughs> There's so many things wrong with that. <laughs> One, everybody has a huge blind spot. We all think our own meetings are great because we get to participate. <laughs> like, but you can't make people be accountable. You can, however, make it a lot easier for them to know exactly what they're expected to do and make it easy for them to remember <laughs> what it was that happened in that room, which is one of the... Uh, one of the reasons, one of the core competencies that we teach in our training classes and our workshops is how to take visible notes during the meeting. Ah, okay. So that people can see those things at the end, for sure. And so, just to be clear, because I, I have been in some meetings where that happens. So notes are taken by one person and visible to everybody. It depends. It, notes are taken and visible to everybody. There are multiple ways to do that. One of them is literally somebody is the blessed as the group's hands, <laughs> right? And they are the embodiment of the group will and they take the notes. The other way to do it is to use technology. You can use a meeting management platform. You can use something like a Google Doc and people co-collaborate on the notes. Yeah. I find yeah. that to be more powerful because you can do things like, hey, that sounds like an action item for you, Fred. Why don't you take that down? And then Fred writes the action item down in a way that he understands it, puts his own name to it, his own date to it. And it's part of a shared document. Again, I've worked uh, with clients who do that exceptionally well. And it's a totally different way to get to the exact same result. It's just a technique difference. But the um, personal commitment each of those people has to following through and the clarity they have about the fact they're meant to is radically, radically changed, right? And I think you're right, because in real time, what happens is Fred writes down what he believes his action to be, and everybody in the room gets to clarify whether that was what they meant Fred to do or not. Yes. And, and there's no ambiguity because we discussed it there and then. It's not you come back next week and I did the wrong thing because I didn't really understand, but I thought I, thought I did. Yeah, absolutely. Or the thing where they're... Okay, yeah, well, we should definitely update that page. Oh, totally, we should update that page on the website. Yeah, it's not we, good at all. We, we, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, that's, that's a lovely conversation about some lovely ideas that some lovely person who's mythical may do one day, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. The other thing that's really fabulous about actual honest-to-goodness written notes published in a shared space is that you can bring them up again later, right? So you come to the next meeting... There's all the things we said we'd do. That's how you get that accountability. You actually check and you, you talk well, about it. Well, the other thing is that potentially, if I haven't been at the meeting, 
here's a, a set of shared notes that were created by everybody, which I can also see. So in the sort of transparency within the organization. So I had a call from a tech company that had grown quite a bit. They'd scaled and they were running into this problem where their decisions had slowed. They'd slowed to a crawl because they had decided that their culture was going to be very open and transparent. So they'd call a meeting and they say, hey, we're going to make a decision about X. And anybody who felt like they might have an idea about that would show up. And their you know, consensus-based way of being had just ground the organization to a halt. When you take these visible notes like that, not only do you get to create that transparency without having everybody in the room, you also, if you do it often enough, create trust that you don't have to be in that room in the first place <laughs> to get to know what will happen, right? Yeah. So that problem of having a bazillion people sit on your call just in case it matters to them can go away. Yes. What about meetings as a place to get work done? We talked, you talked there about people coming in at the beginning and you know, making sure that they connect instead of sitting at the back. I spent time in organizations and in some of them, people feel as though if they weren't allowed to do email in a meeting, they would never get their work done. And I've had some very long discussions with some clients where there's that tension where some people feel that that's where they get their work done is in, in a meeting where it's an hour meeting and their contribution is only five minutes. So why is it not okay to sit there and do work? And, and then other people who feel that we should just structure this meeting differently somehow. What's, the, what's your sort of take on that or best practice or fixing that guidelines? I think there are a couple of things involved here. And you know, one of the other core competencies to build into organizations is respect for people's time and especially respect for that maker time, the time that allows them to get work done. So there are organizations where it is entirely acceptable to do your work in the meeting. We found this, especially with some of the younger generations where they don't even consider it rude. Now, some of their older colleagues find it maddening, <laughs> find it incredibly rude. So yes, absolutely, you should definitely structure within the meeting. If you do have people there who only have a five minute contribution, perhaps all of the things that are just the little contributions you can do to begin with, and then those people should go. You know, if you're just gonna occupy oxygen, then that's not a good thing for anybody else in the room, right? So if they're really not going to do anything, they should leave, I believe. But I believe it's actually more effective to be quite clear and distinct about the meetings, to have just different meetings for achieving different things, more focused, more driven, more purposeful, so that you don't have so many meetings where you've got this overlap of why the hell are we here for this part? And then I think sort of a level up technique on top of that is time blocking at an organizational or a team level. And that's this idea that you agree as the group that we're not going to schedule meetings on Wednesdays, for example, mm -hmm. and we're going to meet like mad on Tuesdays. <laughs> These things that like reserve as, as secret time for actually doing all the emails. So that you don't feel that pressure that you have to do it in the meeting itself. You've seen organizations, you think that sort of ninja level of time blocking? Or was it, or was it something, do people have an aversion to time blocking when you suggest it? People have, don't have, seem to have an aversion to the specific things that I suggest. They have an aversion to making the attempt. 
to change their meetings, period. Huh. Which is sort of a fascinating thing. And, you know, earlier you'd asked, like, why do people say that they hate meetings but never do anything about it, right? Yeah. It's what we call the perverse psychology, <laughs> basically. It's just this really weird cognitive dissonance thing that happens in organizations. But we all believe we know what good meetings look like. And as you get higher up in the organization, the likelihood that most of what your job is, is meeting goes up, right? There are many folks higher up in organizations that meet eight meetings a day, 10 meetings a day. Mm -hmm. That's their job. And yet, at least in the US, less than 20% of our managers have ever had any training of any kind in meetings, mm -hmm. right? There are very, very few MBA programs that discuss meetings at all. That's their job. <laughs> That's how they spend their time. No training. It's as ridiculous as the fact that managers in most organizations hire their team. And again, in most organizations, managers have had absolutely no training on how to select great candidates. And say hiring great candidates is the biggest challenge and then don't fix that. And then, you know, I spend all my time in meetings and my meetings are dysfunctional uh -huh. and I haven't fixed that either. Right. So the, one of the first blocks is they literally don't have the information they need to actually begin making that fix. So that's one. I think another one of the blocks is that it's not something you can do by yourself, right? I'm going to write I'm going to learn how to write better email. No problem. That's on me, right? I'm going to learn better speaking skills. That's on me. I can't fix a meeting by myself. If I decide to change this, I have to bring everybody else around with me and that's risky. You're, you're shifting a norm and that's a little bit scary, especially with something you don't have training and skills in. And then I think the final reason is that complaining about meetings gets us off the hook for a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> if we lost that, what would we do? <laughs> you <know? Yeah. laughs> Sorry, mom can't talk now. I got to go to a meeting, you know? And it's like this automatic out for anything you want to get out of. Like you can be in a meeting and you don't want to be there anymore. And you can say, you know what? I got to go. I've got a meeting. <laughs> It'll just, yeah. It's nonsensical, but, but it yeah. completely works. So I couldn't get that thing done for you because I was in a meeting. Right, exactly. So like if you liked those things, like you can't just say, you know, sorry, I got to go. I want to go to Disneyland, right? You can't say, you know, I feel like having a lovely lunch right now. You can't put in something fun and have it work as an out. So meetings therefore can't be fun. Right. <laughs> anyway. So that's why it's so difficult to think about them in a positive, in a positive way. Well, you know, that, and we just don't have a lot of positive examples. We don't tell yeah. stories about how awesome meetings are. Okay. What are other, some of the other things that you regularly help clients fix in their, in their meetings? The biggest thing we help clients do is implement a successful meeting operating system. It's very much about taking a look at what they're trying to achieve as a business and then finding model meetings that help them achieve those goals in a very sensible, it's very much business process design mm -hmm. through the lens of the meeting. And when you start there, as opposed to like, hey, let's learn how to do good meeting hygiene, which is, you know, start on time and take notes and things like that. If you start with like, here's how we're going to make our decisions. It is a tangible benefit that people can get behind. So it's a lot easier to introduce that to your team 
And it's a lot more fun because you get to, you know, take somebody else's process and then make it your own. That's where we start when we work with clients in a consulting basis. Now, my company also offers software. So in those cases, what we're doing is we're helping people who've begun that journey. They have a way that they like to meet and they're looking to make it more scalable, more automated, all of those kinds of things. And in, in those cases, we help them get set up and bring the magic of technology to reducing all of the administrative work. Going back to that sort of business process, solving a problem, decision-making, uh, is there a format or a structure to that particular meeting that, that works best, do you think? Is there some sort of, we're going to meet for three hours and make a decision. What happens in what order in that meeting? So decision-making is, um, I think it's like the next level drug for people who get into <laughs> organizational things, right? Like I watch all these people and they, they start with sales or they start with influence or culture and then they get into, you know, meetings or whatever, whatever. And then at some point everybody ends up at decision-making because it's so rich and cool and powerful. And the, the hallmarks of a quality decision at the larger level are one of two things, right? Uh, one side, it's a decision that you've made a million times before and you, your intuition is probably correct. So there are some organizations that actually focus on making sure they run lots and lots of retrospectives or action reviews so that more people within the organization have native experience and knowledge of different kinds of situations. They're training their organizational intuition so that they can make great decisions collectively fast. This is something you'll see, especially in um, like elite military or yeah. people who fight wildfires. I was thinking I've been listening to uh, uh, an audio book of a sort of doctor's diary. And I was just thinking as you were speaking, it, it sounded like that whole, particularly in, in the ER. Yes. You know, it's we want to make sure that everybody knows how to respond to a particular emergency situation. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you see that kind of pattern for training everybody in decision-making in those emergency areas and then also in the high innovation and creativity spaces. So like Pixar, they run a really intense retrospective once a week, training everybody, you know, what makes for good story and character and, you know, all of those things and making their products better. So that's one level. And then on the other level, there are the kinds of decisions where we can recognize that we're not an awesome expert <laughs> in that area. <laughs> like, hey, should we accept the offer to be bought by this other company or not? Or all of those things. And in those cases, what you're after is a decision-making framework that will let you get three or more viable options, right? So don't get caught in a yes-no sort of false dichotomy. Make sure you've got at least three options. And then um, have some part of the group bring those three options and the background information about them to the meeting. Have some criteria that you're going to evaluate them against and do that. That's the bulk of the discussion in a decision-making meeting. The other key to really effective decision-making meetings is understanding how the actual decision gets made. And there are a number of ways that could be. It could be a vote, could be any number of things in a corporate setting, the most efficient and usually one of the most um, successful methods is to have one or two people designated as the decision maker. So 
we're all going to talk about this thing. We have these criteria, we have these options. And at the end of the day, it's Fred's decision. Because then it's not a vote. It's not democracy. It's not decision by committee. It's Fred's decision. That's what we're going to do. Right. And if Fred is wise, Fred wants a robust discussion of the options and he wants to have a basic consensus established ahead of time. But to make sure that it moves forward and you have clear lines of responsibility, <laughs> yep. actually having a designated decision maker is, um, is a very effective path for a corporate setting, for sure. Okay, that's really useful. And we touched briefly there on the retrospective. And just as you were talking, I was just, I can see how in lots of organizations with things like customer service uh, or sales, you know, just using that weekly retrospective as a way of, taking either the behavior that you wanted or the behavior you didn't want and just building that in as a, as a weekly session will help you teach everybody and everybody moves forward at the same sort of pace. But also it's that whole, how do you scale past three or four people who know everything to a team of five, 10, 15, 20. So. Absolutely. Um, and is that one of the things where you go into organizations and they, they're not using retrospective and it's in your tool bag and you, you get them to try it? Sometimes, absolutely. And the other thing about meetings is that while there are these fabulous models to be found from other places where they're doing it well, everybody wants to build it themselves and they should. Because it, the way in which you meet essentially defines your culture, right? Culture is the habits that we perpetuate on a day-to-day -day basis. That's what culture is, how we behave yeah. together. And if you come in and you say, you know what, I think you should retrospect every three hours in your customer success team, right? Like that would be an intense practice that would lead to massive shifts in their improvement. That's the kind of thing they do in these really high performance environments. Um, in the emergency room, they not only retrospect afterwards, they practice ahead of time. So they do before action and after action. Mm -hmm. And sales teams can do the same thing. You know, let's do a walkthrough of this high-end sales call beforehand yeah. And then let's retrospect what happened afterhand. And that builds that competency dramatically. It's also a ton of work and a ton of discipline if you're starting with nothing. <laughs> so yes. the benefits are super clear. It's not rocket science to put into place. You know, it absolutely 100% works. But that has to be something they choose. So a lot of what we do is we come in and we help people find where those models are and assess where they are and help them plot a path between those. So much better to try and find some gold and some value in changing something like making decisions faster or retrospect to drive performance than focusing in on meeting hygiene and you have to turn up on time. And it's like you said earlier, people can get behind that one change and, and the other one just sort of rubs them up the wrong way. And I can completely see that. Yeah. It's unfortunate because a lot of people, I have walked into organizations and found that they are running three-hour information sessions with 70 people twice a week. And you look at that and you're like, you are bleeding money. <laughs> you are just, you know, like just slit your wrists and be done because what are you doing? Why do you have all of these expensive people just sitting here for hours and hours and hours? And yet that's their culture at the moment. So you don't walk in and you say, hey, let's use an agenda and keep meetings short and inspire change with that. 
they clearly, clearly need agendas and they need to keep their meetings shorter. <laughs> but why? To achieve what? How will that help all those people? So that's just not where you start. As you can see, it's like with the focus is meetings, but the focus isn't meetings, right? That's the tool. Fantastic. Um, so your book, what's your book called? Where can people get it from? My book uh, that covers a bunch of this, it covers the core competencies. It covers that basic structure and the, the 16 types with stories about each one of them. So uh -huh. you read a cool story about action reviews in there. It's called Where the Action Is, The Meetings That Make or Break Your Organization. It's available on Amazon and it's available on our website, which is lucidmeetings.com. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. And where should people get a hold of you if they want to sort of pick your brains or just say hello? I am also available at lucidmeetings.com. My email address, I don't mind getting email from people straight up, is elise at lucidmeetings.com. That's E-L-I-S-E. -S -E. And we're on Twitter at, you'll be shocked to hear, Lucid Meetings. <laughs> okay. we'll, put, we'll put those all in the show notes. If you could go back in time, and I've said this to people before, and actually Mike Tobin told me that the best way to ask this question is, knowing what you know now, what would you like to go back and fix? Or what would you do over if you had the chance, knowing what you know now? So when my company was founded, we were founded purely as a software company. We built software to help people manage their meetings and take the notes and structure the agendas and all of these things. Base core competencies, because when we looked at successful companies, we saw that they had those things. And we thought, well, golly, I bet other companies really need those things so they can have better meetings. And that's true. But the idea that just software, that people would adopt software as the way to fix their culture is wrong. And so anybody out there who has a software startup that they think is going to go in and fix somebody's culture, I don't care if you're doing meetings or HR tools or anything, <laughs> software's not the path. Software's a tool you can use when you're mature enough to have that use case and need a tool to support it. If I could go back, I would have known that. <laughs> <laughs> And approach things a little bit differently. I'm quite happy now to be in a place where we're much clearer and we can pair that software with training, with workshops that help people get to a place where maybe someday they're ready for software. Uh-huh. Because the software makes it easier if you are then making some changes. If you know how you're going to meet, if you know how you like to make decisions, and you've got software that's got a template that walks you step-by-step step through that and captures all the action items and lets you brainstorm in real time, that's amazing. It's a huge time save and it's a huge value for having all those records in one place. If you know what kind of records you're trying to create in the first place. Yeah. And then the other one is what books, one or more books other than your own, do you think people should, people should read or that have made a difference in your life or that you've gifted to people along the way? I am a big fan of Dave Gray's liminal thinking. It's a slim volume and it talks about how we each construct our understanding of reality. It's a great thing to have in your toolkit if you want to understand why the other people in a room around you might think what they think <laughs> and why you might think what you think and how to potentially begin to bridge some of those gaps, you know, how to get out of some of those traps that keep us from making the changes we need to make. 
And then I like to pair that one with crucial conversations. And you put those two together and you get not only why are we having trouble, but also mechanisms for moving past that. And anytime you're in a place where you need to make a big culture change, those are skills that are going to be useful. And then EOS's book, actually, I like traction. If you haven't been exposed to business operating systems in the large, I think that's a nice introduction. Three books. That's fantastic. Elise, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. For, for joining me today. Have a lovely rest of the day in Portland, Oregon. I am looking forward to it. The sun's almost up. (laughs) All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.